I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, we are talking about a site that has been described as the Syrian Pompeii, an ancient settlement that was frozen in time after a catastrophic event in antiquity. I'm talking about the ancient city of Dura Europos, a city that witnessed a siege, a remarkable, extraordinary siege that determined its later history. To talk about the story, the fascinating history of Dura, I was delighted to be joined by Professor Simon James from the University of Leicester. Simon is a leading expert on Dura Europos. He has done excavations at the site. He has written a book about it, and it was brilliant to get him on the show to talk through this extraordinary history of Dura, including one of the most insane sieges of ancient history. Here is Simon James. Simon, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Now, the story of Dura Europos, this ancient city, it seems so remarkable. I mean, can we say that this ancient ruin, this is the Syrian Pompeii? It's been described as that really since the 1920s when it was first identified. And there are some kinds of similarities. When we talk about Pompeii, we think of a city that's suddenly through a, a natural catastrophe frozen in time. And Dura was similarly kind of frozen in time, but by a man-made catastrophe of a catastrophic siege. Well, we will definitely get onto that during this podcast. But first of all, let's start with the background. When does this city, when does it merge? The place name of Dura actually is a local Semitic word, and we're in eastern Syria here. These were Aramaic-speaking people at the time. The word Dura actually means something like stronghold. So the natural formation of the land there created this chunk of rock which overlooked a narrow pass to allow people to get up from the river valley up onto the plateau nearby. That was then turned around 300 BC into a fortress by some of the successors of Alexander the Great after the conquest of the Middle East and the collapse of the old Persian Empire. It was taken over by Hellenistic Greeks and Macedonians and a fortress was established at this site, which the Macedonians called Europos. So it's either Dura or Europos. It was never both together, was it? That's right. The modern hybrid name Dura Europos is exactly that. It's a modern hybrid name. In antiquity, people called it either one or the other, depending whether you're a Greek speaker or a Semitic speaker. There are similar sites also in the Middle East, like the famous oasis city of Palmyra to the west of Dura, was either known as Palmyra to Greek speakers or Tadmor to local Semitic speakers. And you mentioned that Palmyra is nearby in this desert city, but looking at the topography around Dura or Europos, is it very different terrain to that, for instance, around Palmyra? Yes. Both are, of course, based on necessarily on water sources to support a settlement. Palmyra is based on a, a spring, so it's a true romantic oasis, whereas Dura was founded on the banks of the river Euphrates. So you can think of that as being a kind of a linear oasis. The landscape there is, in a way, a little bit like a mini Nile Valley it's a broad and fertile valley and Dura sits on the cliffs overlooking it. So although there's so much desert around this place, because it's next to this river, this seems like this was a very wealthy, a very fertile area, a brilliant place for assessment. Yes, it is. So extremely rich and fertile land. And of course, things like irrigation systems were known in antiquity. We know that Dura didn't stand alone in that landscape. It was actually an urban settlement which dominated what has been described as a world of villages up and down the valley 
which in many ways is what it looks like today. There are many villages now dotted up and down the, the river floodplain. So Dura, it starts its existence as this Hellenistic city along the Euphrates. How long is it before it's taken over by the next great power in this area? Well, in a way, it doesn't get taken over. It gets dominated by another power. It remains a nominally Greek city. In fact, it's actually culturally very mixed, but the ruling class think of themselves, represent themselves as Macedonians or Greeks. But from around about 100 BC, a little bit before 100 BC, it falls under the sway of the expanding Arsacid Empire, which we often call the Parthian Empire, which became the dominant power then for several centuries in the region. And do we see any change to this city when the Parthians take over? Not really. It remains a city which thinks of itself, at least in the eyes of its ruling class, as particularly a Greco-Macedonian settlement. It's already on a trajectory of expansion. In some ways, I guess you could say it ceases to be so obviously Hellenizing, except in the language, the inscriptions and the titles of its leaders and the personal names of its leaders. They continue to be Macedonian names. The actual fabric of the city, the temples that are being built and so forth, are not classical looking. They're very much Mesopotamian in style and often they're dedicated to deities who will have both Greek and Mesopotamian names. But I love that idea that it becomes more of this hybrid city. As you say, it still retains much of its Hellenistic culture, but you are seeing this Mesopotamian influence as well as the Parthians arrive and dominate as this happens. Yes, the Parthians become the hegemonic power they rule, but really it's rather a remote and relatively easygoing empire. I tend to think of the Parthian Empire as a relatively cuddly empire, insofar as empires can be cuddly. It seems not to have placed a heavy burden on the component communities, cities and so forth, which went to make up this empire. It largely let them to get on and do their own things, as long as they provided troops and so forth, the king and kings were necessary, paid some taxes, etc., So what you have here is a continuation of the trajectory in many ways that was already established under early Hellenistic rule, that the city continues to have this Greek superstructure, which Parthians like, they're Hellenophiles, they like Greeks. But on the other hand, also, most of the population, as far as we can see, are local Syrian, Semitic-speaking people. And at this time, was Dura, or Europe, as viewed as a strategic settlement in any sense, or was it very much focused on wealth and prosperity? Well, the city seems, under Parthian suzerainty, seems to become fairly wealthy, probably partly on the productivity of the local land and settlements, also probably to some extent on trade. There's quite a lot of trade going up the Euphrates Valley. It had actually started as a a military plantation. It had originally actually been a military road station halfway between the two great Seleucid capitals of Seleucia on the Tigris and Antioch on the Orontes, which is very close to the Mediterranean, roughly halfway between the two. But when the Parthians take over, it, of course, suddenly finds itself rather cut off from the Western areas, which are, particularly at Antioch, end up falling under Roman power. And it finds itself now fairly close to the frontiers of the expanding Roman Empire. And so what happens to Dura when the Romans and the Parthians, they start, shall we say, interacting with each other in the military sphere? Yes. Initially, we don't really know exactly when some of the early fighting between Rome and Parthia, including, for example, the attack by Crassus, which ends in the catastrophic Roman defeat at Carai. That's quite a long way upstream from Dura and also where Mark Antony goes steaming across northern Mesopotamia as well. This doesn't seem to involve Dura directly, although I strongly suspect that there may well have been Durine troops requested and demanded by the Parthian king of kings to help him defend his kingdom. So when do we start seeing Dura appearing in the sources? When do we know that it has direct interactions, for instance, with the Romans? Well, from the classical sources, we have very little reference to Dura at all. One of the things that, as an archaeologist, I've always enjoyed about Dura is the story is largely, almost entirely told from archaeology. There's only a handful of references in the general ancient literary sources to the city at all. The texts that we've got have mostly been recovered from archaeology. So with Dura, one of the most extraordinary things about Dura is the amount of archaeology that we have surviving. And from that archaeology, we can construct a timeline of Dura's history in the ancient period. And it seems like especially in the second century AD. Yeah, I think what we see at Dura today, which has been explored since the great campaigns of excavations starting in the 1920s and ending shortly before World War II, It's showing us the city as it was in, of course, its latest period, which is, to some extent, the remains of the end of the Parthian era. 
and then the roughly 90 years of direct Roman rule. The Romans take over the city, far as we can tell, probably around about the AD 160s, and then they're in charge of it. It becomes part of the province of Syria down until the city is destroyed in the 250s, probably in the year 256. When the Romans take control of the city, is this now permanently in Roman control or does it switch sides quite quickly or is this now for quite a long-term period of time in Roman hands, full stop? The story of the relationship between the city and Rome is quite complicated. We do know that, and again this is from the archaeology, archaeological discoveries, that the city had been briefly taken by the Romans at the beginning of the 2nd century under the Emperor Trajan when he managed to conquer all of Iraq as it now is, and uh, actually managed to get as far as the Persian Gulf. However, he was not able to maintain himself, rather like the consequences of the Second Gulf War, the invasion in 2003. The Romans found themselves facing lots of insurgencies and had to eventually withdraw again. So Dura seems, in the most of the first half of the second century, down to about the 150s anyway, to have been back nominally in Parthian control. And then the Romans come back again when there's a large war at the end of the 160s. And thereafter, it's in Roman hands more or less up until the time of the siege. Though there are some hints that it may have changed hands a couple of times in its last few years. It's very, very fast, rapid changes. The city might perhaps have fallen to the new Eastern Empire, which succeeds the Parthians, the Sasanian Persian Empire, which very nearly drives the Romans out of the east and becomes Dura's nemesis. Well, you mentioned there how now Rome takes over Dura more permanently until the siege, and we will get to the siege soon. But does it suggest then, from your archaeological work at the site, when the Romans take over, does Dura become more military-focused? It certainly does become more military-focused, yeah, in as much as we can see archaeologically, and also from some of the papyri and inscriptions that have been recovered from the site, that a large chunk of the interior of the city is taken over by the Roman military. The city is round about 50-odd hectares, and at least a quarter, more like a third of that, is taken over for a Roman military cantonment, which ends up eventually having a big headquarters building, it has baths, it has an amphitheatre, a sucking great imperial palace in it as well. So this is a big deal. I've sometimes described it, especially perhaps for UK listeners, as Aldershot on the Euphrates. How does this affect the Durian inhabitants? I mean, are they sort of pushed out of a certain part of the town? Is there very much a line drawn between what is the military part of the town and what is the civilian part of the town? There does seem to be a pretty hard boundary line between the Roman military cantonment and the the civil town. And in part of the city, at least, but apparently only part of the city, which is slightly curious, there is actually a quite substantial metre and a half thick mud brick wall built between the two areas. And the early excavators in the 1930s particularly thought that the Roman garrison were brutally dominating the civil population. And particularly Mikhail Rostovtsev, the great Russian scholar who was responsible for the excavations in the 1930s, he took a very dim view of the coming of the Roman military. He thought that what had happened was that the city's prosperity ended with the arrival of the garrison, who basically beat up the civilians and robbed them and reduced what had been a once proud Hellenistic trading city on the Euphrates to effectively a terrorised village attached to a big Roman cantonment, big Roman garrison camp. My own view is that this is very erroneous. Now, it certainly would be the first to admit, having studied the Roman military for longer than I'm going to say now, that Roman soldiers could be deeply unpleasant, not only to the enemy, but each other, apart from anybody else. And there's a lot of Roman literature, juvenile satires and so on, who make it quite clear that if you're a civilian, you do want to keep out the way of Roman soldiers who you don't know, because they're quite likely to take your donkey or maybe kick your teeth in. They're really pretty unpleasant people. So at one level, it's not entirely implausible that this should be the case. On the other hand, I actually have found signs in the archaeology that the Roman garrison were actually taking quite a lot of care not to make more of an impression on the city than they actually had to in a negative sense. And one of the best pieces of evidence for this is where they built their dividing wall between the military cantonment and the civilian zone, because they built it within the footprint of the houses that they'd taken over. Now, if they didn't care about the civilian population living in the next batch of houses, they would have simply driven them out and built the wall through those house plots instead. Looks to me as though they were being very careful to respect property boundaries. And I suspect that what we got here probably is compulsory purchase of civil housing. 
and the Romans were therefore taking some cognizance of the feelings of the civilians. So I think the idea that when the Roman garrison arrives, all the civilians in the new military zone are driven out at sword point simply isn't accurate. It was obviously going to be a very difficult time of adjustment for people, but I do think that actually the garrison is going some way to make life easy and even actually better for the civilian population. And so what are those ways where it seems to suggest that the Roman soldiers were actually perhaps making life easier for the local population? Well, for one thing, the new Roman garrison base incorporated a number of the old traditional temples of the Dura civilian population. And one of them was taken over for a military administration complex. But one of the things I realised looking at the plan was that the bits they took over were at the back of the temple. They were very careful to leave the central shrine and the front access of the temple open. And if you follow the route through the military base outside the perimeter to the civilian city, there is actually a routeway which goes right from the middle of the marketplace, so the centre of civil life, up through the middle of the military base to the front of this temple. And just where this roadway crosses the main crossroads of the Roman military base next to the headquarters building, there's a big, elaborate, what we could think of as a ceremonial arch across the road. And looking at this, it's in a rather strange position. It looks to me as though it's designed to funnel people from the central marketplace up to this temple sequestered inside the base. It's something the Roman garrison had built. And the way I'm interpreting this is that Processions were very important in the religion of cities like Duryaropos throughout the eastern provinces. And these would have been regular festivals to do with the temple. I think that the Roman garrison were not only allowing these to continue, so allowing civilians into the base area to get to the temple, but they were actually helping to architecturally elaborate the route. And they were pretty certainly joining in because Romans were generally, although they could be very nasty indeed, they were also very pious people. They respected the local gods. So I think they would have been very happy to join in with the religious festivals of the local population too. And incidentally, this route also happened to pass next to, and I think probably through, the amphitheatre that the Roman garrison built on the boundary between the military base and the civil town. And I think that was probably designed to be a shared facility, one of a number, which also included bathhouses. The bathhouses, some of them were inside the base, but the two biggest ones were actually in the civil town near the main gates of the city. And I think that's the garrison building these largely for the benefit of the civil population or as a shared facility. On a human level, it does seem to make sense that you want to respect the local population and treat them very well, because especially if you've got enemies on your doorstep further east and in the ancient times where you could have traitors opening the gates, as it were, to foreign invasions, keeping the local population on side seems to be a win-win really for the Romans. It does appear to be sensible. And also, of course, Dura seems not to have been treated as a conquered city. It was probably treated as a liberated Greek city. It was a place the Romans wanted to maintain, make use of. And also they probably wanted the civil population to be as productive and reasonably happy as possible so that they'd be paying taxes, for one thing. And indeed, a German scholar, Oliver Stoll, has written a book arguing in some detail, partly on the basis of evidence from Dura, but many other places too, that it was imperial policy to promote harmony between garrisons and civil populations in the East precisely for these reasons, not least solidarity against the potential external threat of the Sasanian Empire, which is developing in the 3rd century. And we see throughout the Roman Empire, for instance on Hadrian's Wall, we see these auxiliary units that have been shipped all the way to this northwestern frontier of the empire from places like Syria, etc. Do we have any idea from the archaeology at Dura where these garrison soldiers in this city actually came from? Yes, we know in very considerable detail. In fact, actually, Dura has given us more information about one particular unit than virtually any other unit from the empire. We have a mixture here in the third century of auxiliary soldiers and legionaries. People might imagine that if you're talking about Roman legionaries, they're going to be coming from the west. In fact, no, they're not. The men at Dura are drawn from the two legions based upstream on the Euphrates, which both actually have been in Syria for centuries, many generations anyway. And they are going to be manned by Roman citizens, certainly, but they'll be Syrian-born Roman citizens who probably speak largely Greek. The particular unit which is most important at Dura is the 20th Palmyrene cohort, which is a thousand strong, a fascinating outfit because it comprises mostly infantry, a large cavalry component, and also some dromedary riders as well. So it's got a camel element too. Fascinating outfit. But these again are from Palmyra. They're local boys, at least in origin, when the unit was raised. And from 
the details we've got, we've even got rosters of soldiers when they join the regiment and so on. And from their names too, like the legionaries, most of the soldiers of the 20th Palmyrenes are, again, they're Syrians. So many of them are Palmyrenes. So they are very much our local boys. So this, I think, again, is a part of the evidence for suggesting that, in fact, these are not very alien foreign troops. This is a unit which is probably being raised and developed at Dura. So they will be familiar people from the outset. That's very interesting. They said that they actually don't come from very far away to actually serve at Dura. And so do you think these soldiers, are they accustomed to the way of fighting in this terrain, in this climate, in the Near East? Yes, very much so, particularly the 20th Palmyrenes. The fact they got camel riders as part of the unit is clearly an indication of this. I think this is a, we might think of this in modern terms as a specialist desert warfare regiment or steppe warfare, I should say, because we're not actually in true desert here. There is some rain at Dura. It is very, very dry and barren. But they are adapted to the kind of warfare which also the Parthians pursued, which does involve some infantry to hold ground, but also cavalry, horse archers and heavy armoured lancers. This is the kind of warfare we're dealing with in the region. So we know about the troop types. Do we know anything also about their equipment? Well, this is where I came in, really, with uh, Dura Europa studies, because I started off fascinated by Roman arms and armour and then discovered that huge amounts of Roman arms and armour had been discovered at Dura in the 1930s, but never published. And most of that was at Yale, which is where I went off to do my research study. I was actually at University of London, but that was where I did my fieldwork. And the reason I was so fascinated by it was the astonishing state of preservation of some of the arms and armour from the site, which included nearly complete painted wooden shields, including the only complete example we have of one of the famous semi-cylindrical Roman legionary shields covered with bright painting, and a couple of oval shields with beautiful paintings of Greeks and Trojans and Greeks and Amazons, and also complete horse armours too, belonging to the heavy cavalry I was just mentioning, which may well have belonged to the 20th Palmyrenes. That's remarkable. So you have these extraordinarily well-kept, intact pieces of equipment, arms and armour surviving, from what we can ascertain even more about the garrison. Yes, there's a slight caveat there, and as much as the arms and armour were nearly all deposited in the course of the siege, and it's possible, in fact, actually, I think we're now increasingly sure that for a while, just before the siege, the city had been in Sasanian hands... The Romans then got it back again. There's a question of who were the soldiers who came back into the city. I'm pretty satisfied that it was, at least in part, the same garrison that had been there before. They managed to come back again. And we do have one papyrus which helps to prove this from the year 254, which seemed to be after the year or two of the Sasanian occupation. And this, rather sadly, actually is a divorce document of a soldier of, I think it's Legion Forskythica, I've just gone out of my head which legion it was, I think it's Forskythica, who was married to a local Durian woman, it says, which itself is an interesting detail. So that shows that at least some of the legionaries came back. Yes, well, you mentioned divorce there and you mentioned married to a local Doreen woman. So, of course, it's the garrison. It's not just the soldiers. What do we know about the dependents, as it were? What do we know about the women and the children and the traders who would have also been in this military camp? Well, this is a relatively new development, really, because this aspect of Roman military communities is something that has come onto our radar much more in the last couple of decades. When Dura was initially found, it was assumed that this Roman garrison, which we could see through archaeological remains and through the texts, was essentially just all soldiers. But now we understand that, especially where you have soldiers stationed for a long time, they do put down roots, they start to acquire or bring together many dependents because there is this old idea that Roman soldiers weren't allowed to marry, which was always an exaggeration because there was nothing to stop them owning slaves. They could also form marriages according to local law. It's simply that they weren't officially recognised marriages. So many soldiers tended to acquire families. Also, we increasingly understand how many servants there were in Roman military formations, that where in modern armies you might have logistic specialists and so forth attached to units who were themselves soldiers. In the Roman world, these would be slaves, servants, some of them may be in free status, who would operate the baggage trains. Cavalrymen would have their own servants, which is rather like a knight having a medieval page. And I certainly suspect that a lot of those cavalry servants were probably teenage wannabe soldiers, maybe themselves sons of soldiers who were learning the ropes before they're old enough to enlist. So you can imagine that a garrison like Dura, which may have had perhaps 1,500, maybe even 2,000 troops, for each soldier there was probably at least one, maybe even two or three dependents of various kinds, families and also slaves and servants. So that's a big grouping within the city. Of course, then there's the issue of where did these people come from? The legionaries who came to Dura may have been on short-term postings. We just don't know whether they're rotating from their main depots far up the Euphrates. 
But the 20th Palmyrenes will have acquired its very large tail of dependents, probably actually at Dura, and I suspect many of them were themselves Durines. And this is another way in which through intermarriage, for example, and through buying slaves perhaps locally, who eventually may well become freed and then go on and have their own families as free Roman citizens, this is another way in which the garrison is going to be interacting with and then merging with over the several generations it's there with the civil population. Do we have any idea where these wives, slaves, servants, do we know from the archaeology where they would have lived? Would they have lived on the camp as well? Would they have lived in the same barrack block as the soldier that they're with? Well, for one thing, what we do know at Dura, give people a picture of the base, it's not like the kind of forts we're familiar with on Hadrian's Wall where you have custom-built barrack blocks. In the east, here at Dura, what they did was they simply minimally converted civil housing by adding extra partitions to make smaller rooms. Exactly how they're occupied is not very clear. They do look as though there are lots of ovens and things built into courtyards and so on. It's all quite ramshackle. But my own suspicion and expectation is that the women and children, all the slaves and servants, they're all just living in with the soldiers. They're not kept separate in any sense. For example, there are the kinds of some of the artefacts which are unlikely to have been used actually by Roman soldiers themselves. For example, things like loom weights inside the garrison area, which suggests there are probably women there. Obviously, that's not absolutely certain, but it's an indication. And there are actually also items of female dress, which have been identified in the military housing too. So you can think of the military garrison area as actually being a city within a city, a military town within the civil town. That's the kind of way I think of it. But as we're exploring it, even though they're to some extent physically demarked, in terms of personal relationships, they were probably getting tighter and tighter over the generations. Yes, yeah, so it seems to have this divide, but also it seems to be a very permeable divide. Is there is interactions, but you can also see a division in the line in this ancient city. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts, it's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week, on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover, or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, we've been building up the suspense, Simon. We've mentioned it a couple of times already, the siege. So who are the Sasanians? Well, this does, in a sense, relate directly to why the Romans ended up in Dura in the first place. We mentioned earlier on that uh, the Emperor Trajan had tried to conquer Mesopotamia, roughly modern Iraq. That's because the Romans were constantly harking after continual expansion. They wanted glory and more and more territory. They wanted to conquer the Parthian Empire. They kept trying and they kept failing. They got to the stage where they could start to nibble away bits of the Parthian Empire, including Dura, and take that. But all they really succeeded in doing during the course of the later 2nd century, the beginning of the 3rd century, was gradually weakening the Parthian Empire without actually being able to overrun and hold it. And they created what we might think of as one of the most disastrous bits of imperial blowback in history in as much as they managed to overthrow the Parthian Empire, but not by conquering it. What they managed to do was to trigger regime change, as we now say. There was a revolution within the Arsacid Empire, and the Parthian King of Kings was overthrown, and a new Persian Empire, as the Romans called it, of the family of the, ruled by this, the Sassanid family, was established. We call it the Sasanian Empire. They incidentally called themselves Iranians. This was established, and... The Romans suddenly found themselves up against what proved to be a much more formidable military foe. So Dura had been conquered partly as a forward operating base, a jumping off point for more invasions down into Mesopotamia. But suddenly, with the rise of the Sasanians, particularly from the 220s or thereabouts, Dura found itself as an exposed frontier outpost of Roman military defence, because now the Romans were increasingly under attack from the Sasanians. So... What is the road to the siege of Dura? When does it happen and what's the background to it? It's a bit obscure, but there are a series of wars from the particularly the late 230s onwards 
and there are some important Sasanian invasions of Roman territory, some of which get as far as Antioch and reach the Mediterranean. And for a while at that period, it looks as though the Romans are going to lose control of the entire eastern Mediterranean world to the Sasanians. It's one of the biggest existential threats the Roman Empire faces in this period. We are familiar with the barbarians in the west attacking from the north, the early Germans. For the Romans, they were a big nuisance. The serious strategic threat was the Sasanian Empire in the east. So the Sasanians raid deep into Syria. And at some stage, probably in 252, in one of these raids, they take Dura briefly. The Roman Emperor Valerian then comes into Syria with an expeditionary force and the Sasanians withdraw. And that's probably the circumstances around 254 when the Romans come back to Dura. And this time they're determined, they're expecting another attack. They're determined to hold it. So they start to transform the city into much more of a military stronghold. And it's probably around this time, this is certainly according to the work of my colleague Jen Baird, who studied this in detail, that much of the housing, civil housing, seems to be abandoned. And she's argued that probably many of the civil population left in a kind of around this period probably just fled and abandoned the housing. So probably it's only the garrison in the city. And what they do is they strengthen the vulnerable western defences of the city. The city itself has very rocky, precipitous slopes on the north, the south and on the river cliff side. But to the west, the city is just built on the flat plateau. It's only defended by the walls that have been built in Greek times. They need to reinforce these because they already know that the Sasanians are actually really very good at siege warfare, which is what we're about to look at in some detail. So they build a massive earthen rampart behind the old Greek stone city walls and they build a sloping mud brick glacis on the front of it to stop it falling over forwards, make it harder for battering rams and things like that. And then it seems, from coin evidence, probably around 256, the Sasanians come and they make a determined effort to destroy Dura. So you mentioned how the Sasanians are very good at siege warfare and how the Romans seem to know of this. So when the Sasanians get outside the walls of Dura, from your archaeological work, how does it seem that they try to break through the defences? Well, much of the research on this was done in the 1930s by a very talented French soldier, Monsieur Le Comte Duménil de Buisson, which is a name I always love saying. And what I and some of our colleagues in the wider Dura project have done is to try to reevaluate the work that was done in the 1930s, only partially published, and also have a look further on the ground where we can. And when I first went to Dura, I was just astonished at how well preserved the siege works are from all those centuries ago. So we can actually walk around them, you can see them. And the most prominent item of the siege assault, which indicates that the siege itself lasted for many weeks, if not months, because of the scale of building work involved, is a huge siege ramp at the southern end of the Western Defences, which, as I say, was excavated by Dumais-Neil and has been further excavated by my colleague Pierre Leriche. I also fortunately got to do a little bit of digging on that for a couple of days, which was fascinating as well. And this was really a, a mud brick box up against the walls of the city, which was then filled with earth. And the idea was to create a sloping roadway up which some kind of a siege tower, a siege engine, could go to allow troops to drop over the walls. And the excavations that happened in the 30s showed that this was a huge fight here, that, of course, the Romans didn't simply wait for this to happen. They took countermeasures, they raised their own wall. So as the ramp was going up, the city wall was going up too, to make it difficult for the Persians to get over it. But also, simultaneously, the Romans were digging a mine underneath the Persian siege mine. At the same time as the Sasanians were undermining one of the Roman towers, because the tower was a platform for catapults and things, which was obviously slaughtering the Persians, or probably the actual local slaves they were forcing to build the ramp. So the Sasanians decided to knock out the tower at the same time as the Romans were undermining to knock out the ramp. And apparently they both fired their mines, burned the pit props. The tower came down, that became useless. But the Romans also fired their mine under the siege ramp roadway. That collapsed and made that useless. So you could think of it as a bloodstain one all at half time, so to speak. Yeah, so it sounds like a stalemate so far, but they're doing stuff overground and also underground. At that point, yeah, both. They're trying to go over the walls. They're trying using mining to also affect the defences there. They do also attack on the surface. Something that our French colleagues have excavated over the last 20-odd years is around the great main gate, the Palmyrene Gate, as we call it now, through the Western defences. Unsurprisingly, gates are always a main target of assault. And they found evidence in the front of the gate there, again, of a ferocious fight Lots of burning, fragments of what might be part of a Sasanian siege engine, although nothing very diagnostic. 
shield bosses and all sorts of things. Lots and lots of iron catapult bolt heads, stone artillery projectiles. So there's a ferocious fight there. But again, the Sasanians do not seem to have managed to break into the city there either. So what do they decide to do then? I should emphasise we don't know the sequence of this. This is simply that we got a number of loci along the defences where we can see there were siege assaults happening. They would possibly throw all of these things at the Romans at once. But the other place where we got a lot of detail, which has produced some of the most dramatic archaeological evidence for warfare of any period, in my opinion, and you know, having studied this and, and looked at many other sites, was some distance, 100 metres or so to the north of the gate, around one of the towers, which is today known as Tower 19. And this was another kind of assault again. In this case, the Sasanians had tried to go over the walls at the ramp. They tried to go through the city gate on the surface. At this point, their objective is to bring down part of the city wall and again, send a column of troops charging across the steppe from their camp into the city that way. And they're going to undermine the wall by digging a siege mine. And what they do is they break into one of the chamber tombs only actually about 40, 50 metres outside the wall. So they're really close in already. And they dug a tunnel under Tower 19. It's only the way we found this, or Dumais Neal found this in the early 1930s, was he could see this tower had partially collapsed and part of the wall also was disrupted. So he wanted to know what's going on there. He was himself an experienced soldier, he'd been in the First World War, so he was concentrating on this. He dug this area and he found the evidence that we're talking about here now. So what he discovered was that the Sasanians had undermined Tower 19 and they dug this gallery under the wall and also along an adjacent stretch of the city wall, about 15 metres long. So the idea was that once their mine was ready, they'd take all the stones out, put pit props in, make some air holes, fill it with brushwood, set fire to it. And interestingly, one of the things we know they had for setting fire to it were things like sulphur crystals and also were in the world of crude oil. They had a jar of crude oil as well. The idea was to use those accelerants to get the pit props burning. They burned through and then the wall would come crashing down and there'd be a breach and the troops could go in. But, of course, the Romans could basically see this digging going on. They could see the mouth of the mine. They must have seen all the earth being taken out. They knew perfectly well what's happening. They could probably hear the miners too, a known siege defence technique. You could use metal shields and things to amplify the noise of the miners. They dug their own gallery to intercept the Persian siege mine. Again, to emphasise, this is entirely from archaeology. This is unknown to history. So what Dumanial actually found was he found this Roman countermine, as it's called, which connected with the Sasanian siege mine. And in that mine, he found a large number of bodies. The mine itself had been burned and he found a tangle of about 20 bodies who were crammed into an area of the gallery, which is still partly open at the time, only about two and a half metres long. And if you stretch your arms out either side, you could easily touch both walls of this gallery. And it was probably barely head height. So these bodies were really crammed into a tiny space. Nearby, there was a cedar burning again with crude oil and with sulphur crystals. And next to that was a body in armour as well. This tangle of bodies, and I studied their equipment because it still survives, they're definitely Romans and they got some of the latest coins still in their purses, these bodies, when they were found. They're wearing mail, shield bosses in there, some swords and so on. So they're definitely Romans. The guy on the other side of the focus of burning in the Roman countermine, he's got very different kind of armour and a very interesting helmet. And he's certainly a Sasanian. He's probably the guy who set the fire to bring this mine down. So what seems to have happened is that the Romans broke into the Persian gallery before it was finished just to try to capture it to stop the undermining happening. But they all then rapidly ended up dead. The Persians captured the Roman mine, piled the Roman bodies up to make a wall to stop the Romans coming back in again while they burned the Roman mine to stop the Romans interfering anymore, in which that single Sasanian perished. Then at their own leisure, the Sasanians carried on with their mine. They actually further blocked the Roman gallery with stuff they were taking out from the underside of the Roman wall. Very convenient place for them to dump all this extra stone. Well, they even mortared it together to stop the Romans breaking in again. Then they fired their mine and it failed. That whole damn thing, the wall, instead of tipping over into the plain and making a breach, it simply came unzipped at each end and sunk vertically into the ground about a metre and a bit and it stayed upright. So in fact, the Roman rampart and glacis worked. It helped keep the defences intact even though they'd been undermined. So tragically, those poor guys who died in the fight in the mine perished for nothing. So the Sasanian gallery actually failed. And in fact, we still don't know how the Sasanians got into the city. 
that's absolutely astonishing, that story that you can possibly deduce from the archaeology and the remains that you have as well, learning about the equipment, being able to deduce what remains were Roman, what was the Sasanian, and like the mine and the countermine. And you mentioned earlier how you have these 20 soldiers very close in all together. What are the theories around how they perished? Well, Dumais Neil published some papers around about World War II on what he thought happened. And he thought what had happened was that the Romans had a sword fight, basically a hand-to-hand fight with the Sasanians in the mine, and they started to lose, they were being pushed back into their own mine, and that a Roman officer panicked that the Sasanians were actually going to come into the city through the Romans' own mine, which would be a bit of an own goal. So what Dumaniel thought was the Roman commander had deliberately collapsed the mine on his own men to stop it coming in. I never really thought this was very plausible. And then what was great about Dumanio's records was they were detailed enough for me to put them back together and reconstruct in detail how the bodies had actually been stacked. He did very good drawings. And actually I was able to demonstrate that this wasn't a group of men who'd been trapped in the mine and collapsed where they fell when the Sasanians filled the mine with fire. These guys were already incapacitated or dead and they'd been stacked in a pile to make a wall across the mine. So this then leads to the question of how and where did they actually die? So I was puzzling about this and my first idea was that maybe in fact this was the sort of thing sadly we've seen at football stadia in recent decades. Perhaps it had been a crowd crush incident of guys pushing at the back to try to get into the mine and the guys at the front are being worsted and they're trying to push back and people were asphyxiated through crushing so that people died that way. It didn't seem to be entirely convincing. And then my colleague Kate Gilliver suggested the possibility that they may actually have been smoked, that this might actually have been an asphyxiation attack. And that proved to be the key. That made really excellent sense of what was happening here. If these guys had actually encountered some kind of fumes... Now, the reason why this immediately started to all fall together is that this is a known ancient tactic, is to deny tunnels to the enemy by filling them with smoke, using smoke generators, basically bellows and things. They use just nasty things like burning feathers, just to make really horrible acrid smoke. However, what we have got in the mine here at Dura, we've got crude oil and we've got sulphur crystals, because we know the Sasanians use those to burn the Roman mine once they killed the Romans. So what I've suggested, following on from Kate's original insight, is that just as the Romans heard the Sasanians were coming, the Sasanians heard the Roman counterminers. They knew they were about to have a nasty interruption. So they got together a smoke generator themselves, probably a portable brazier of hot coals, which they put near the entrance into the gallery under the tower. And when they heard the Romans break into the gallery, they simply let rip with Pat's bellows, certainly throwing crude oil and sulphur onto this brazier, and then you get thick petrochemical smoke and also poisonous sulphur dioxide rapidly filling the Roman gallery. Because the gallery is now connected, there would have been a chimney effect between the Roman approach tunnel and the actual siege mine, which is at a higher level under the walls of the city. So it would have very quickly filled the Roman gallery with poisonous smoke. So I think that is my interpretation. This actually would, in modern terms, count as a chemical weapons, chemical warfare. And this will be, if it's correct, and this is a circumstantial argument, then this will be one of the earliest attested examples of such warfare. From what you're saying there, this seems like a chemical warfare trap by the Sasanians against the Romans. Yeah, I think it is. They were kind of ambushed with the smoke generator. And this is testimony, as of course is the sophistication of the siege ramp and the implied machine that went on that, and apparently sustaining use of artillery. They were as technologically sophisticated and had stratagems just as complex as the Romans did. That's absolutely remarkable. And this possible series of events, almost all of it, if not all of it, has been gained from the archaeology at this site. The story of the siege at Dura is entirely from archaeology. There is no historical reference to it whatsoever. And it's been tremendously fascinating, also quite horrifying, of course, to work on this. And now to think about how actually did this come about? Where, for example, then did the Sasanians actually apparently suddenly developed this siege technology because the preceding Parthian Empire doesn't seem really to have had the capacity to besiege cities, so far as we know. What the Sasanians do at Dura is show that they had mastered all aspects of siege warfare, just as known to the Greeks and Romans. Everything from building siege ramps to mining to apparently use of catapults, torsion artillery, to including things like the use of chemical smoke generators. So where did they get this? And uh, I think it's fairly clear that they got it from the Greeks and the Romans. The preceding Parthian Empire, of course, uh, had always respected Greek culture and learning, 
Greek soldiers had developed a lot of these kinds of techniques. The Romans learned them from the Greeks largely. So I think that Parthians and then Sasanians will have had access to the same kind of manuals of warfare and stratagems for generals that Romans would have had. There's also another interesting clue that the historian Cassius Dio, writing at the end of his history, just at the time the Sasanians are rising in the 220s and 230s, he comments on how some of our troops are going over to the enemy. And I suspect that there may well have been some we might think of, or the Romans would certainly have thought of as turncoats, also perhaps just people who were looking for a better fortune, perhaps Roman-trained soldiers, themselves Syrians, who threw in their lot with the Sasanians. This is a phenomenon which is quite well known in antiquity, of people changing sides going across the frontier. So I suspect it may be that some of the Sasanian engineers at Dura might actually have been Romans. That's very interesting. And of course, I guess it once again stresses the interconnected nature of the ancient world. There were people passing back to and fro all across. And that was an amazing story about the siege. I'm guessing the Sasanians do emerge victorious in the end. They certainly do. We don't know how they broke into the city finally, but we know that they did. And one of the things that came out of my own research, going back through the unpublished records of the excavations of the 1930s, is that actually some bodies were found in the Roman garrison area. There's a teenager, apparently, who was found lying on the floor of one of the rooms, and also a man still in armour was found. None of this appeared in the publications, but it's in the archive, which is why going back through archives is such an important part of archaeology today. So the Sasanians got in, there was apparently fire and sword through the city, but what they don't seem to have done this time is to try to hang on to it. What they did was they apparently either killed or enslaved and carried off any survivors, so the city was left effectively abandoned thereafter. And is this why, this fact that it's left, this ruin, this desolation, is this why so much archaeology survives at this site to this day and is so extraordinary? Yes, it is. There was a little occupation thereafter. There's probably a Sasanian period, a bit of farming going on there, and the medieval period, there's a small Arab village. But really, as a city, that is the end in the 250s. And in the later medieval period, you start to get towns reappearing in this zone, which for centuries was something of a no-man's land between Rome and the Sasanian Empire. Once you get through to the Islamic period, then new towns are established on different sites. This one doesn't get rebuilt. So it's left as sort of the archetypal, well, it's not actually a desert ruin, it's a ruin in the steppe, but an abandoned town out in the boonies, where things like the siege preparations are just left untouched. Of course, had the city been reoccupied, those would have been all removed and disposed of to get the city back to life and restore the defences. So the tragedy of the city of Dura and its occupants, of course, has been, as is so often the case, the good fortune for modern archaeologists. Absolutely, absolutely. And one last question regarding the siege. Do we have any accounts in late Roman writers of sieges happening in the eastern part of the empire against the Sasanians, which perhaps may have a very similar story to that of Dura? Yes, there's a fascinating literary comparator for Dura, which also has an interesting Dura connection in a sense. And that is in my favourite late Roman historian, Ammianus Marcellinus, who himself was from the east. He was a Roman officer and he was caught in the siege of the city of Amida, which is a couple of hundred kilometres, maybe a bit more north of Dura, now just into modern Turkey, in a siege in AD 359, where Dura was besieged by Shapur I, his descendant Shapur II, besieged Amida, and Ammianus gives this fascinating description of this ferocious siege there, which again involves things like ramps and artillery and so on. And it's well worth a read to compare because many of the features of that very vivid account are remarkably similar. So, for example, he talks about the Sasanians managing to get some men into the top of one of the Roman towers. And then the Romans use their arrow shooting catapults to shoot these guys out again. And he talks about the catapult bolts sometimes going through two men. So it's really very vivid, nasty stuff. He allegedly escapes by a postern gate as the city is falling and being sacked and lives to tell the tale. And fascinatingly, he himself, a little while later, a few years later, is in a Roman expedition to counterattack the Sasanians, led by the last pagan emperor, Julian, who again invades Mesopotamia. And they march down the Euphrates. And we have this eyewitness description by Ammianus of the army passing through the abandoned city of Dura, where they hunt gazelle and so forth because uh, there's just nobody there anymore. It's just going back to nature. And I think it's rather wonderful that Ammianus, who'd gone through a siege very similar to this, should then go and become this sort of historical connection with the archaeologically attested siege of Dura on their way into the ultimate defeat and Julian's death in Mesopotamia. Because once again, the Romans unfortunately tried to invade Mesopotamia and failed.
Seems to be a repetitive strand, that, in Roman policy. And you mentioned how they went past the ruins of Dura. You feel kind of sorry for the Durines when you hear that. Yeah, for instance, when they left Dura, when they became more militarised and they were forced out, and then they were never able to come back because following the siege, it's just a ruin. Should we feel that the Durines, were they helpless victims of foreign imperialism? They have sometimes kind of been depicted that way since Rostovsev's time. Frankly, he wasn't really interested in the indigenous people. He was only interested in the Greeks, the civilised Greeks. He saw this as an island of Hellenistic civilization, which was tragically crushed between the nasty Romans on the one side and the uh, equally nasty Sasanians on the other side. And I think that is a rather simplistic view. Of course, this was an appalling tragedy for anybody who was caught in the city. But throughout its history, Dura itself was, I think, quite an active military place. The original Macedonian city was founded by soldiers It was a little city-state. I'm sure it had its own armed forces for controlling the territory around it, for controlling the local Bedouin tribes and so forth, who were already at some times odds anyway with the settled people in the river valley. And then in Roman times, again, they weren't just an oppressed people with the nasty foreign Romans. They were themselves becoming Romans. They were intermarrying with their local people who were themselves Roman soldiers. So it's a much more complex and personal story than this, even though, of course, it does end in the kind of tragedy of people having to flee war, which we have seen with the Syrian civil war in recent years, which tragically itself, again, has also led to another destruction of Duryaropos, because like many of the other cities in this part of the world, the ruins have been themselves massively plundered for antiquities to sell to keep the fighting going. But, of course, that particular disaster for Syria's heritage does pale into insignificance by comparison with the suffering of the people which include the villages who live near the site. Simon that was an absolutely amazing chat the siege itself seems like the topic of a movie it's so absolutely amazing thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks very much Tristan it's been my pleasure. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.